Leadership is communicating to people their worth and potential so clearly that they are inspired to see it in themselves. Dr. Stephen R. Covey. Hey friends, I hope you are doing well today. Welcome to another episode of Intentional Living and Leadership with me, Cal Walters. If this is your first time joining this podcast, this is a podcast where we focus on personal growth and leadership. Two times a month, typically on a Tuesday, I publish a new episode exploring things that I'm learning in my life or insights that I bring you from inspiring guests. And today's episode is really special. Today I'm bringing you an interview with former Navy captain, best-selling author, and a true leadership expert, David Marquet. Here are just a few things that people say about David. Stephen Covey said, I don't know of a finer model of this kind of empowering leadership than Captain Marquet. Simon Sinek said, to say I'm a fan of David Marquet would be an understatement. I'm a fully-fledged groupie. He's the kind of leader who comes around only once in a generation. He's the kind of leader who doesn't just know how to lead. He knows how to build leaders. His ideas and lessons are invaluable to anyone who wants to build an organization that will outlive them. I can relate to Simon's thoughts on David. He's a true leadership hero for me, so it was really special to get to sit down and do this interview. A little bit about David's story for those that are unfamiliar. He graduated in the top of his class at the Naval Academy, graduated number one from his nuclear power school class in the submarine officer basic course. David has always been a brilliant guy, but over the years in the Navy, he learned that being a great leader is not all about being the smartest guy in the room. After years of proving his competence, David was awarded with his his very own command of a nuclear submarine. He was told he'd be taking over the USS Olympia, so he did what he always did. He spent a year studying every aspect of that ship. He became an expert on every part of it, the crew, the capabilities. But about two weeks before he was set to take over the Olympia, he was reassigned to take over a different ship, the Santa Fe. He knew nothing about the Santa Fe. And with only two weeks before taking over, he knew his typical leadership approach of being the smartest guy in the room and just giving orders wasn't going to work. So aboard a nuclear submarine, a place where few would feel comfortable taking a lot of risk and doing experiments, David tried an entirely different approach to leadership. Instead of viewing his crew as a bunch of followers that simply followed his orders, David empowered them to think, to take initiative, and he developed them into true leaders. He moved from a leader-follower paradigm to a leader-leader model, and the results were truly remarkable. His leadership turned the ship around. They went from the worst in the Navy to receiving the best evaluation in Navy history. Even after David departed the Santa Fe, continued to win awards and promoted disproportionate numbers of officers and enlisted men to positions of increased responsibility responsibility, including 10 subsequent submarine captains. When Stephen R. Covey visited the ship, he said it was the most empowering organization that he had ever seen, and he ended up writing about David's leadership practices in his book, The Eighth Habit. David first shared his leadership principles in the number one Amazon bestseller, Turn the Ship Around. Fortune Magazine named it as the number one must-read business book of the year, and USA Today listed it as a top 12 business book of all time. And now, on February 4th, David is releasing his new book, Leadership is Language, which I 
I've had the chance to read, and it's an incredible book. Some books, you know, just give you a nugget here of wisdom, an insight there, but David's books, I think, are unique, and then they completely challenge my paradigm of leadership. David really tries to get us from moving from this leader-follower to leader-leader approach, and in his new book, he tries to pull us from this framework that we've established in the industrial age to the modern era. The new book has been recommended by Adam Grant, General Retired Stanley McChrystal. This was just such a fun interview for me to do. I've read all of David's books, but he ended up in this interview sharing some stories and some insights that I had never heard before. Uh, He even coached me a little bit on some of my leadership weaknesses, which was fun. So as always, you can find the links to David's website and his book in my blog entry, which you'll find on my website, calwalters.me. That's C-A-L-W-A-L-T-E-R-S dot M-E. And so without any further ado, please enjoy this interview with best-selling author, David Marquet. David, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on your show. Thanks for all the listeners to Intentional Living and Leadership. Well, it's an honor, David. And as we were talking off camera, I have been an admirer of your work for a while. So it's really surreal to, to see you through this virtual screen here. And I'm honored that you would make time for this. I'm really excited about your new book coming out, Leadership is Language. Thank you for giving me an opportunity to read that. It's exciting. I loved it. I loved your book, Turn the Ship Around. So I'm really excited to get to explore those with you today. I wanted to start, though, by asking you about your motivation for helping leaders, helping teams, kind of a, almost a, a question that I think Simon Sinek, your, your friend, would ask, what is your why for doing what you do? Where does that come from? I came up through a highly com- command and control environment, and, which I was really good at, by the way. That's, what, that's how you end up being a submarine commander. <laughs> and... When I changed my thinking from leader follower to leader leader, my job is to create leaders. My job is to make a decision-making factory, not make decisions, on and on and on. And I saw the change in me and I saw the change in my people. I saw the brightness in their eyes and the excitement with which they engaged in their jobs. I just, I felt like, yeah, this is it. I mean, humanity is, we're releasing the passion of all these people. We can't have 7 billion people on the planet and 100 million of them think, and the other rest of them just do what they're told. It's not going to work. But that's how we run most organizations. And then I had a personal experience. I had a great time out in the fleet, this squadron commander, after the Santa Fe, and I was a, the head of an inspection. Then I went to the Pentagon and I did not do well. Hmm. I was not a good Pentagon officer. I raised my hand and asked questions a lot. <laughs> I, I, I didn't. I, I didn't do it always in the most tactful way, and I kind of walked away from some of the stuff that I thought I knew. And I put up with bad and toxic leaders longer than I. Should. Bottom line was I, I developed a. I was in a very toxic place where I was working for. a Admiral and throw throw coffee cups in the morning and mm, wow. pens and yell and scream in the hallway. It was horrible. And I developed a health condition and separated from the Navy with a 90% disability rating. Wow. They separated. The the doctor says, Okay, so here's here's how well your heart's working, and here's your age, and here's what you weigh. Type this, go to the spreadsheet, and they'll tell you what your life expectancy is. And mine was seven years. Wow. And I was really effing pissed off. Yeah. And this happened while I was in this really toxic environment. And the problem is, as leaders, we too many times we just view it, oh, it's a promotion and a pay raise. That 
is incorrect. Leadership is a greater obligation because you're you're like a doctor, but it's like a doctor can perform bad surgery on one patient and make a mistake. If you're a leader, you could through bad behavior, bad leadership, you can affect the lives of hundreds of people. And it's the toxicity which wears on us and it causes all these problems that we see bullying, suicide. I, I could probably link opioid addiction. But the problem is we don't have a Hippocratic oath for leadership in my mind, but we should because leaders as much as anybody affect the lives of other human beings and there's an ethical responsibility. So I'm here to help. I, 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 I have to do my part and I'm here to help other people who believe in the same thing. Now, if you don't believe that, fine. I don't, I don't waste any energy and time on you and I'm not trying to sell you any products, but our, our target audience is the people who believe that, that we should respect other humans and create the environment for everyone to be great. I call it the inner superhero. I believe each person has an inner superhero. And the inner superhero, sadly, I go through life and the inner superhero doesn't come out very much. And then we blame them. Oh, you need to speak up. You need to buy. You need to take charge. But we don't do the hard part, which is control ourselves. We don't say, you know, I'm not doing the right thing here. I'm, I'm asking questions which are putting you on the spot, as opposed to making it easy for you to share your dissenting opinion. And then I blame you later for holding back on your dissenting opinion. And in fact, you were the only one who actually had the answer that this was a bad idea. So leadership means taking responsibility for yourself and trying to control yourself. Don't give your people a lecture about how they should be. I had never heard about that Pentagon experience. Was that after the Santa Fe? I don't tell many people. Okay. Um, yeah, it was, it was well after. It was my last couple of years in the Navy. So that was happening at the same time. The 10th officer from the ship got promoted to some, uh, got selected for submarine commander. Wow. So I have these two things in my head going on. I'm being treated like crap in the Pentagon and having health conditions. And my team, my, my years later, these ripple effects are still happening. And so when I got out of the Navy, of course, I was depressed and moping and ill and worried. And my wife's like, you got to get your act together and stop moping around. Why don't you write a book? And I was like, I'm an engineer. What are you talking about? And <laughs> bottom line was that, anyway, that saved my life because then I had to tell a story. So I started calling all my old shipmates. Hey, how do you remember this? What happened mm. there? Put the story together and then realized what was going on. And now, now, I'm, now I live in Florida. I work out every day. I'm home and I'm going to live to be 100 years old. So no one's worried about me. <laughs> Your wife sounds like a wise woman. <laughs> Other than the fact she married me, super wise. <laughs> well, I can relate to that. I can relate to that. So these insights that you share and turn the ship around, were those insights that you discovered and maybe appreciated after the fact? Or did you realize what you were doing in the moment? We realized that we were doing something very special in the moment in terms of getting everyone thinking, giving it, getting everyone this feeling, a sense of ownership, creating an un, the performance record was unbelievable and set re in the history of the Navy, for example, the, the highest score of operating the nuclear reactor. And we re-enlisted every single sailor over the next 12 months. Mm -hmm. And we got 10 guys selected for chief one year. There's only like 11 available. Only 11 first class petty officers were eligible. So, so we were like doing amazing things. Two things we didn't understand. Number one, we didn't know what was going to happen after the next 
what happened what would happen after i left what would happen yeah, to everybody right. after they went to different places we didn't know of course yeah but the other thing was the construct of what we did the day after i left the submarine said well what did you do i would have had this jumbled well we did this, this there would be like 57 different things yeah without an organizing principle what the book does is it forced me to understand well what was the organizing structure behind all this stuff because you can't remember a list of 57 yeah and then that's what i think part of the magic is is you have the 57 or 23 or actually 23 mechanisms in the book but they're within a organizing construct which gives structure to it this is the mad you need both yeah no doubt yeah and in the book and turn the ship around you talk about shifting the paradigm from this leader follower paradigm to this leader leader paradigm and I'm curious if you were to go back and talk to midshipman David Marquet and his view of leadership back then, how would you explain to him what leader leader really means and what it looks like? <laughs> Good question. I, so midshipman Marquet had a book that said, <laughs> leadership shall be defined as directing the thoughts, plans, and actions of others so as to obtain and command obedience, confidence, respect, and loyal cooperation. I would have looked at you like a Martian. I would have like, <laughs> what are you talking about? That's not what leadership's about. Leadership's about giving clear and concise orders, being right as much as possible, and knowing all the answers. And I would have viewed leadership. So I would, the question is, how would I explain it to that knucklehead? Yeah, what would you tell, like, how would you describe it to him? Because I think a lot of people, when, when you, I imagine when you go and teach these concepts around the, or the world, really, yeah. There's probably some pushback because it's such a shift from the traditional way of thinking about leadership. So how would you explain to your former self or anyone maybe that's not familiar what it looks like? Like, what did it look like on the Santa Fe? So, under this he, he, so let me explain. Uh, okay, let, let me try and draw a mental picture here. Uh, and listeners, give me feedback on this. In the old way, so there's two kinds of activity in life. There's yep. thinking. Hmm which is an expansive, broad perspective activity. And there's doing, which is focused, reduce, uh, focus. In other words, reduce perspective, right. narrow perspective. Do, focus, if the picture of the person on the assembly line, that's the focus, that's archetypal focus doing. Right. Any kind of action typically is doing. And then thinking, a bunch of people in a brainstorming session, will embrace variability, reduce variability. That's another yep. one of the differences. And you put labels on those in your new book. Yeah, and so I call them, one of the tricks is you gotta label things so that you can sort of capture. For them. people like me that didn't no. are top <laughs> of the class at Naval Academy. <laughs> exactly, so, so the thinking we call blue work, it's the creative work, and the doing is red work. Blue so, work is thinking, red work doing, got it. Yeah, blue creative, the idea of, create, of creativity, the color of creativity, red focus, red is the color of focus. So, got it. So, in industrial age organizations, we outsourced the blue work and the red work to different teams. And so the blue work went to management, college educated, salaried people, while the red work went to typically non-college educated workers. And we paid them differently. And we have very we have this very clear binary dichotomy in work, union, non-union, hourly salary, leader follower boss worker and, and it's a vestige of this industrial age idea where thinking is the purview of one group and doing is the purview of the other what you want 
I think, is everybody to do blue work, everyone to be involved in blue work. So that means that all these, this whole mass of red workers who we used to just treat as doing precision work, doing focus work with, to the exclusion of variability, we now have to periodically say, all right, everyone stop, put your pencils down. Now let's make a decision. And it's not going to be, I'm not going to decide for you. In the old days, I'd follow you with a clipboard and then I'd make decisions for you. Or maybe I'd ask you, but still, I was still deciding for you. Now I'm going to say, okay, put your pencils down. Let's reflect back on how the last two weeks have gone. What do you guys think? How should we change it? What should we do different? Mm. Let them decide. So mm. this is the big difference is engaging the thinking. And when you do that, you get so much magic comes out of that. You get a bias for action. You get ownership responsibility. People can ask me, well, how do you hold people accountable in this model? You don't need to. They hold themselves accountable because mm. they're the ones who made the decision. The accountability is a vestige of, well, I'm going to decide for you. And then, oh, by the way, here's your task. Here are your resources. Here's your timeline. And then I'm going to yell at you when you didn't achieve it. That's accountability. Let the doers be the deciders. Get everyone involved in the thinking. In your Leadership as Language book, I love this quote. You said that, as I changed the way I communicated with the rest of the crew, it affected the way they communicated with me and with each other. When I changed the way we communicated, it changed the culture. Changing the culture transformed our results. Changing our words changed our world. You're referring there to the Santa Fe. And so it seems to me that you're saying, really, it all began with changing the language That's that you were using. And then it changed the language that the folks on your ship were using. Exactly. And here's the thing. So there's two important lessons here. Number one, we act our way to new thinking. Hmm. We act our way to new thinking. So if you want a new culture, don't give a lot of speeches about culture change. Find one small way, some, one small behavior that if the team performed would bring you closer to the new culture that you want. Then practice it yourself hmm. and act in a way that makes it easy for the other people to have the same behavior. I mean, it's super easy to say, but you got to get the sequence right. After you make a decision that we need a new culture, okay, there is some thinking there, but basically we act that, because then that repeated action rewires your brain and then the feeling then comes. An example on the submarine which says, we, we, we forbid the word, forbade the word they, there's no they on Santa Fe. So I started saying, well, we, we had all these they's, they, the officers, they, the enlisted guys, they, the chiefs, they, the engineering department, whatever. And so now we had to say we. Now initially it felt awkward. I would say we, referring to people who didn't feel like we, but six months later, we, it felt like hmm. it was the most coherent, cohesive team feeling I'd ever seen. Hmm. And people would say the same to me. And they would say, oh, what amazing, how'd you build this culture? And I said, I don't know, uh, it's not a culture. So we have a rule that we don't say the word they. And I think a mistake people make is, is they just say, oh, have a culture of teamwork, and then they walk away, and they haven't done the hard work of, well, what is that actually? Here's the question. The question is we call it Wisley. What would it sound like if? Hmm. I wanna, so the activity you do all right, with the corporate teams is fill in the following. We would like a culture where there's more blank or we would have a culture less blank. And they, type, they write in all the usual things, more teamwork, more collaboration, less silos. And then you say, okay, what would it sound like if? Now, this is where the hard part is. Because they say stuff like, well, it's, it would sound like me listening to you. I'm like, no, that's, <laughs> that's, that's just describing the thing again. It's like, 
I want to know if I put a recorder in this mm. in the in the meeting room and I recorded it and I listened to the recorder, what would I be listening for that would give me a clue that we were closer or further away from this culture? And then, or and we have what if we had cameras, but the cameras have no sound? What would we be observing? It's a great activity because what it forces you to do is define what those fuzzy, fuzzy, fuzzy things. Well, we want more empowerment. And the first question is, what does that mean? Well, you know, empowerment. No, I don't know. Yeah, I have my own picture of what that means, and I guarantee what only thing I know is it doesn't match your per- picture perfectly. The only yeah. question is how close is it? But you have to describe. But so once you say, okay, so in this meeting, when this issue comes up, this person will say, I intend to solve the problem this way rather than what do you want me to do to solve the problem? Okay, mm-hmm. now that's something I can sink my teeth into. I can observe it, I can measure it, I can practice it. That's how you create cultural change. So David, one of the things that I have struggled with, if I'm just being honest, as a leader is empowerment. And I think when I look and I reflect on my leadership, both when I was a platoon leader, when I was in combat, reflecting on these moments, why have I struggled with empowerment? I think it comes down to a couple of things. One, I like control just as a human being. Two, it's the paradigm that I grew up with, you know, leader follower. Also, I've been burned before, I guess. I've, <laughs> I've trusted people and they've let me down, which I know in your book, you talk about that, where you, you tried it one time and then it didn't work out on that, the ship before that. And then you just took back control. When you yeah. go around teaching this, what are the biggest areas of pushback you get? Or what seem to be the biggest obstacles to people empowering their teams? Well, I, th- I think you pretty much nailed it, which is you're wired for control. You're a mammal. So it will always feel unnatural. Like if you have the choice be saying, I'm going to be the alpha, I'm going to tell you what to do, and saying, yeah, what do you guys think? Your, your wiring will go with number one all the time. Number two, the system is designed that way. And number three is the biggest fear of giving control is, oh, well, I'm going to let them make this and they're screwed up. So here's the thing. I'm guessing, you, know, you can tell me what the real story was, if you said, just go do it, then yeah, then they did it and they said, oh, it was a bad mistake. But if they say, well, here's how I intend to do this, you're in on it, dude. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. The problem is you went too high. You went too far. Too many people think it's a light switch. Oh, I decide, you decide. There's like six steps in between. There are five <laughs> steps in between, actually. <laughs> I, this is what I see, now you decide. This is what I think, now you decide. This is what I'd like permission to do. You you give me permission, but I won't do it unless you do. Here's what I intend to do, which means you have the right to say no and ask questions, but absent a no, the answer is yes, and then here's what I'm going to do. So don't don't go from here to here without testing. And then the whole idea is now I get to hear your thinking. You expose yeah. your thinking. Yeah. And it turns out you're thinking – is not quite right well now i can talk about it because if it's intent it hasn't happened yet and then i can understand well why is the thinking different the first thing is i don't know that it's wrong i just know it's different than my thinking one of the two of us is wrong yeah (laughs) we always think of course it's the other person but it might actually be you so you explore that and at the end you say okay great we're not going to do it but we're going to do it but you're in on it and you've benefited from understanding their thinking Hmm. And what do you do if, if you don't feel like you're, the person on your team is at a level of competence that they can be trusted with that task or that project? 
Well, you ask them anyway. How are they going to, first of all, do you really know what their competence level is? So how do you know? How are they going to build it? I, so, I, okay, here's an example in the submarine. We would, let's say you just had a problem and you have to report it to headquarters. So you're writing a message and it's, and it's it generally a, it needs to be a pretty well-crafted message, which is very clear about the problem, doesn't overstate it, doesn't understate it. If you do it wrong, you're going to invite a lot of extra questions and scrutiny. <laughs> now the way this always works so i inherited an organization where the captain always wrote these messages so the first time this happens let's say it's an engineering problem the engineer comes up he reports it blah 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 and i say great go write the message and he looks at me like with doe eyes i just said it's just fun just just do your best job come back in half an hour and so what, I, what do i do i write the message i open mm -hmm. up my computer start banging away so then the engineer shows up 30 minutes later and his message is terrible, but maybe there's like one little thing in there that's good. I like, oh, that's really good. Let me grab that. And I put it in my message. The clock's ticking on these things. You can't wait for it. So let's say 30 minutes, we decide we're gonna send the message in 30 minutes. They say, great, here's what I wrote, send it. And then let's talk about it. Like what was different, blah, 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 blah. And then you just start doing that. Mm. And then the second time, or, the or you, you can do mock drills too, but the second time, it's going to be better and better and better. By the end of the time, I never wrote those messages after a year. I didn't write any of those messages. But if you never do that, say, well, i got to do it myself. Yeah, and it's the power of and. And you do it. Because I'm training you. This is why we ended up with 10 submarine commanders. Is because I'm, I'm training you to think like a submarine commander, or at least like at least this one particular submarine commander. Yeah, For some so reason, good. we don't give them... Well, I'm going to write it anyway. Yeah, do, and have them do it. Just see what they come up with. Who yeah. knows? You might be surprised. And you got to give them the opportunity to do it. Otherwise, you're depriving them of the de uh, development. See, the, the problem is we don't do that in our normal work. And then we have to have a whole separate leadership development pipeline, which is a huge waste of time. So yeah. cancel the pipeline and just let normal work be leadership development. Your job as a leader is to develop more leaders. That is so good. And that, that really helps me. I wish I had known that about 10 yeah. years ago. Uh, <laughs> they don't teach you this at West Point. <laughs> you know, I think for me, the way, I, the way I see it in my, you know, small brain, I think about it's the push and pull. It's I'm both empowering and I'm developing. I'm empowering yeah. and I'm developing. Exactly. And when I think back about my own experience, a lot of times I took the expedient route, but it wasn't the best route long term. It was, I'm going to do it myself. But in six months, I was still doing it myself. Right, right, right. <laughs> and right. no one so, was getting any better, and, right, and people right. weren't happy at work. Yeah, congratulations. That was my training, too. <laughs> so, the uh, listeners, I'm holding up a two-by-two, two, little two-by-two two matrix, and the, and the dimensions are knowing and telling. Mm -hmm. So where are you playing? Uh, and I always wanted to be a knowing, telling leader. That seems pretty obvious. Yeah. Knowing, telling leader optimizes things for the short term. You're not building a leadership team. Hmm. And so what you want to do is as many opportunities as you can. Know it, you can de you can, here's a shock for you guys. You can know the answer and actually not tell the team. You can decouple those. Hmm. So I think you want to be, we call it no, don't tell. You want to know the answer. I'm not giving you an excuse not to know your job. Know the answer or at least have the answer if the team doesn't. But don't tell them the answer. 
allow them to develop it on their own. Just like the, the, the example of the message is just exactly the same thing. You, get, you say, well, I gotta write a message and we're gonna send it in 30 minutes, so I might as well write it. And it's gonna be the answer if they, I don't get a better answer. Hmm. But still let them develop it on their own. And sometimes it doesn't take long. Sometimes they say, go away for 30 minutes and come back. And tell, me what about, tell me if you were if you were me, I died, and uh, you got an instant promotion to captain, what would you do? And then the second, the other reason why that's clever is it changes their perspective from department head or whatever minion level they're at to the, the CEO or the captain or the president yeah. or whatever position you're at. And that changes the way they answer the question. Hmm. There's so, it's so good. And I, it really is. And, and it's also good for people. You know, people feel more fulfilled. We, in the start of your uh, Turn the Ship Around book, you talk about just how unfulfilled people are at work, how unhappy they are. And I think, imagine if leaders were more in the mindset of building leaders, because I think people tend to rise to the level of our belief in them. That's, that is key. Here's the thing. People, I hear people say this word, sorry, I'm going to jump all over. No, no, that's. People say, take risk. And my thing is, of course, take risk on what? Don't take risk on mother nature. That's idiocy. Mother Nature doesn't care. Mother Nature will not change the laws of physics because you took risk on pipe wall thickness. Mm. Okay? People, however, will modify their behavior. So it becomes a reinforcing thing when we take risk on humans. And again, with intent, it's all fake because you still can say no. Yeah. You still can say no. But when we take risk on people, I, I had this memory when I was a junior officer where I was responsible for setting up like the ship's training for a week for the whole ship. Mm. A- anyway, I was walking past the captain's stateroom and the, and the XO was in there talking to the captain. And I just overheard him saying, the captain was asking the XO, hey, how's the plan for this, the training coming, which we, we're going to do in a couple of weeks. And the XO said, yeah, I haven't checked on it, but I assigned it to Marquet, and he's a diligent, thoughtful officer who will ask for help when he needs to, and I'm sure it'll be fine. And I heard that. I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> but the cool thing was, it, and I don't remember the specific words he said, but they're pretty close. The cool thing was I then became that person. Yeah. I, yep. I might not have been quite the person before I Wi-Fi, but as soon as I heard that, I became that person. Yep. And I was like, oh, ask for help when I need it. And I ran up and showed the XO, I'm like, hey, here's what I'm thinking, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, yeah, yeah, it's good. Go, go away. You know, let me know what I can do to help. And I was like, oh, my God. I, and I just like, I didn't sleep for like 400 hours because I was just <laughs> like, man, I got to make this right. And, oh, that's and, such a good story. Such a yeah, good example. And it was just. I have to ask them if they knew I was coming by the hallway the next time I see them. But anyway, <laughs> trust people. Take risks yes. on people. Yes. And by the way, anything involving people, and you got to think long term because yeah. helping develop people, it's a long term. It's risky and it's long term because they may not develop. Right. They may not. They may just say, you know what, you keep trying to work on me, but I'm just happy doing what I'm told. So I'm, I'm just good with it. And say, okay, great. Thanks. We part friends. But it always takes long term, so it's 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 a it's an uncertain long term benefit, and what you're trading that against is a certain short term cost, which is yeah. the delay and just doing what the hell I tell you to do. Yeah, and I think it leads to a more meaningful life because I think a lot of us as leaders, 
deep down in our heart, we want to have a legacy of leadership. We don't want to just move from job to job, accomplish the task, and then have nothing really to show for it other than a good evaluation. And I think when I think about your Santa Fe experience, you had a leader factory there. And you were able to see that legacy years, decades later. I love the point you make in in one of your books. I can't remember which one where you talk about how, why don't we measure leadership in some way based on the team after you leave? Yeah. And I was working with the Air Force at one point. The A1 had me in there and we were talking about some things and they said, we want, you know, we want leaders to think long term. So here's an example of actuating new thinking. We want leaders to think long term. And we talk about what would it sound like if and that kind of thing. I said, well, what if we, here's the thing. What if we evaluate every commander, you leave the squadron and a year later, you're going to get an evaluation, concurrent evaluation on, on you based on how the squadron did over the past year with you not being there. Mm. And their heads all exploded and they fell on the floor and jitters. <laughs> and, and they said, well, there's so many variables and who knows. I said, okay, great. I think the performance boards can sort that out. But how much, just think about yeah. your, how that would change your behavior. If you knew you were going to be evaluated yeah. over the next year and years getting closer and closer to the departure date, You'd be so invested in making everybody else great, which is versus the bad behavior that I've seen, which is, oh, I'm going to show how how needed yeah. and necessary and irreplaceable I am by taking all my secrets and toys with me and yeah. then hiding information. And yeah. it's just atrocious. So uh, at the end of the day, it was too much. They didn't do it. I, I, I would love to have seen it. Like, just, just do it as an experiment and see yeah. like what happens. Memo for the record or something. I just think it would be amazing in terms of how it would change the behavior of leadership. No doubt. So you're, you got a new book coming out February 4th, Leadership is Language. Really excited about it. I'm, thank you for the opportunity to read it. I loved it. Tell me what this is all about. What, what led you to write this Leadership is Language book now? It's a culmination of everything we've learned up to now. And it's this idea, a lot of what we've been talking about, it all comes from this book. It's yeah. this idea that we're doing and thinking, we got to get the doers part of the thinking crowd. All that's in this book. The magic of the book is there's a construct for it. We reveal a pattern, which we, I call it a playbook. And we, we all operate by a playbook. Some of us just do it automatically, we don't think about it. Like, what is that playbook? Where did it come from? Well, it turns out it came from the Industrial Revolution, 99% of the time. And so what we want to do is do, we want to rewrite that playbook. We want a modern playbook because the old playbook was designed to get doers doing work that the deciders decided for them to do. And the new playbook is designed to get the doers in this rhythm of thinking on their own. And so that's a fundamentally different thing. And then the third thing is that specific words and languages and how to ask questions and how to how to run meetings, for example, how to talk with with groups that will enact and will identify the change in in work type. Are we is are we in thinking mode or are we in doing mode? Well, it's a great book, David, and I just want to thank you so much for giving this podcast your time today. I've learned a lot from your writing and your work. Thank you for your life and for for all you're doing. And thank uh, you. Um, you know, these six plays that you play out in uh, Leadership is Language are great. So I encourage everyone to go check out the book. For those of you that are listening, you can find David at davidmarquet.com. 
and his intent-based leadership. You can also find Leadership as Language uh, at Amazon. I'll also put all the show notes at calwalters.me. So please go and check those out. But David, thank you so much for your time today. And I've learned a lot from uh, what you're teaching. Thank you. Thanks to all your listeners. Thanks to what you do to help make the working world a better place for all the people around us. Thanks, David. 